Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Excite the mind and the hand will reach for the pocket is a quote by the American-British retail magnate who founded the London-based department store Selfridges, Harry G. Selfridge. I thought this was a fitting quote for our guest today. Another entrepreneur at the helm of Australia's largest pharmacy franchise retailer with over 500 stores in Australia, New Zealand, China and Ireland with annual revenue of over 1 billion and 20,000 staff. Our guest today is Jack Gantz, the chairman of Chemist Warehouse who commenced in business in 1972 with his brother Sam. With a strong entrepreneurial streak, they started by importing sunglasses from Taiwan before expanding into sunscreens, fragrances and cosmetics scaling the business with household names such as Lespex, Latan, and Australis. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and then you can apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in Ireland, New Zealand and China, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, Board and Executive Search Firm. In our wide-ranging conversation, Jack shares his personal insights on his life. Being born in Russia with his parents escaping Nazi Germany, spending time in a French refugee camp, before migrating to Australia with next to nothing on their backs. We learn how Jack shifts from medicine to pharmacy as a career ambition before ultimately building a life as an entrepreneur. As fate would have it, he would sell his initial business, meeting a new business partner in Mario Verrocchi, with the trio going on to scale greater heights and opening the inaugural chemist warehouse store in Melbourne in 2000. Rather than being a pretend discounter where a few products are on special, they made the bold move of putting all products on special and as such have revolutionized retail pharmacy. Jack reveals the magical art of customer experience while also providing affordable accessibility to essential prescriptions and medications. With invitations to future markets for Chemist Warehouse, including Dubai, Israel, the United Kingdom and others, Jack looked back with pride on his 51 years in business with a combination of inspiration and aspiration. Looks forward to walking into one of his stores on Oxford Street, London or Fifth Avenue, New York. So sit back and enjoy No Set Rules. Jack, welcome to the show. My pleasure. 600 stores, 20,000 employees, 8 billion in sales. Jack, what drives you? What drives me? I don't know what drives me. I guess um, I've been entrepreneurial all my life. Uh, people said, uh, did you ever think that you would end up being an $8 billion business? And I said, yeah, sure. When I came out of my mother's womb, 
<laughs> I said, uh, I'm going to be an $8 billion business to start off with. Yeah. The answer is, I don't know what drives me. I guess I just uh, want to strive and continue to. But I, when, actually, when we, when we hit a billion dollars, which was around about 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I couldn't believe it. But we never stopped and, and celebrated. We just sort of said, okay, we've got $1 billion. Let's see how long it takes to get the second billion. Where does it stop then, Jack? Well, I don't know. I mean, we've got a lot more expansion in Australia. We opened our 500th chemist warehouse store around about two months ago. Yep. We have um, about another 200 more stores. If we were to have the same saturation in all of Australia as we do in Victoria, mm-hmm. but the difficulty we have here is that the Guild and the government have got these regulations about location rules. And so in order to be able to get a new store, we have to buy a number and we can't move it more than one kilometre. And that prohibits us from opening stores in areas we want. But we're doing it slowly and we're uh, we're finding, you know, loopholes here and there and we're going through those as much as we can. But the expansion, the biggest bit of expansion that I can see is international. Mm. We opened in New Zealand about five years ago and now in New Zealand our budget's $1 billion for this year, $1 billion in, in five years. We've got 47 stores. And the stores in New Zealand are much more um, powerful than they are in Australia because of the fact that we don't have the same restrictions in New Zealand as we have in Australia. So we can open a pharmacy in New Zealand wherever we want, yeah, whenever right. we want, and uh, the ownership laws are much easier over there. So we, we think we'll be about $2 billion in New Zealand. We're in Ireland. Yeah. We've got seven stores in Ireland, and uh, the, the size of the stores there are about – five times the uh, volume of the average pharmacy there and more than double that of Boots, which are the biggest group there. We've got uh, five stores in China uh, plus the Alibaba store. And China's set to grow because we've been sitting on China for a while since COVID and now that it's open, we're ready to rock and roll in China. And you've got the beachhead set up for Europe. Well, the reason why we went to Ireland wasn't to go to Ireland, it was to go to Europe. I just got an email from someone in Scotland. The Scottish uh, government wants us to open in uh, in Scotland. I've been asked by the Israeli government to open in Israel. The thing is that when we open, we make things much more affordable for the consumer. We do a number of things. Firstly, we lower the price of, uh, of health and beauty in, in the area. Secondly, we actually sell a lot more product. If you look at the model we have in New Zealand, when we went to New Zealand, Ego had a pretty good market. But because of the success that we had in New Zealand, we pretty well doubled what Ego is doing in New Zealand. It wasn't just from our increasing the business that doubled it. It was the fact that our competitors saw what could be done mm. with Ego and therefore they started uh, being more paying more attention to the product so Ego had a, a huge increase in New Zealand. It's the same with every manufacturer. Yeah, it is. What's the what's the play with China? What's the ambition there? Because you've got both online and you've got physical. Well, China China could be a fantastic market. I think there's a bit of change in attitude by mm. the Chinese. The Chinese government has a lot, big influence on the consumers over there. The Chinese government says that made-in-China products are better than made anywhere in the world and you should buy local products wherever possible. Up until COVID, uh, things were flying in China, but since mm. then, I think that, uh, that it sort of softened a fair bit. But we're still doing very well in China. I mean, it's a huge market, 1.3 billion people. If we could get a small market share of that, we'd have an incredible market. But we only sell duty-free in China because we can't 
register our products in China because of the restrictions they have with registration. So we have duty-free stores throughout China where people buy duty-free and they're going to have the Australian products available there. Okay. What actually is Chemist Warehouse to you, Jack? What does it actually mean? What does it mean to me? Yeah. That's a, <laughs> a very difficult question. I mean, it's, I guess it's my baby. I started in pharmacy in 72, started uh, importing sunglasses, created a brand called the Specs, Latan, mm. started Latan, Australis uh, Fragrance, Australis Cosmetics, sold that business 91 to Graham Smog, and then went back and reinvigorated the uh, whole pharmacy market and started My Chemist, which was the first marketing group that we started. Chemist Warehouse started in 2000 when we had 50 stores. We said, instead of being a pretend discounter where 100 or 200 products are on special, let's see what happens if we were to special everything. Everything was 25% off, a 25% discount off everything. To make it work, what we had to do is we had to reduce the wages of rent considerably because the average pharmacy has about a 40% gross margin. Yep. And if we discount by 25%, we'll end up with a, a negative uh, bottom line unless we can reduce the expenses. So we're able to reduce the wages by choosing secondary locations, not major shopping centres. But we're able to get big sites. We're able to get 500, 600 square metres. And uh, because we, um, we attract customers, become a designation store, we're able to have a high, our average turnover in Australia is about $12 million. So it's pretty easy to uh, have a 2.5% uh, rental as against the average pharmacy has about a 12% rental. And our wages are less too because the average basket size is much greater. Yeah, well, every time I walk in, I'm guaranteed I'm going to walk out with something, aren't I? The way, the way that exactly. you structure exactly. your store, it's, it's pretty uh, pretty engaging to say the least, is it not? Exactly. Well, the, the, What is Chemist Warehouse? Chemist Warehouse is a retail of health and beauty where you're provided with the best product range, the best value, the best depth and width of product at prices that are unbelievably uh, unbelievable. And you'll invariably always walk out with something because we're going to have something for you that's going to be attractive to you price or, or product-wise. Our front of shop business, which is everything other than prescriptions, yep. is about 75% of the business, whereas the yes. average pharmacy is about 20% of the business is front of shop. Because we focus on that. So you've turned the model upside down. Yeah, well, that's right. But that doesn't mean that we don't do many prescriptions. I mean, we still do about 25% of all prescriptions dispensed in Australia and about 50% of all front-of-shop business sold in Australia. So one in two packets of aspirin is goes through one of our stores, probably a high percentage of that. So if I was a pharmacist and I finished my study, I've invested, I've set up my own location, I'm in a good suburb. I've got a good bit of clientele. Why do I go to you? Well, first of all, we wouldn't want you because unless you've been through the school of uh, Chemist Warehouse, we don't really want you because you probably don't have the philosophy or the attitude that we need. Okay. What we will do is we will bring you up as a student, then you become a trainee, and after that, if you're good enough, you'll be a pharmacist. We, do, we have about 500 trainees that go through our academy through our stores, and they learn retail. After you finish pharmacy college, which is a four-year course, nothing about retail. You wouldn't know the difference between a $5 note and a $10 note. You wouldn't have a clue on how to order stock or how to serve a customer yep. or how to open a store. We teach people that. We teach them retail. 
and we're the best retail academy in Australia in pharmacy. So you would start off as a student after doing first year. You probably been working for two or three years, then you become a trainee. Then after that, you would become a pharmacy manager, and you probably become an area manager if you're good enough. Mm-hmm. And then if there's an opening, we will offer you an opportunity to be a partner in one of our stores, and you could uh, become a partner in a store that ultimately will be doing about $12 million turnover and you'll be an equity partner in that store. Sounds like a pretty good deal. And the trouble is, if we bring people in that haven't been through the academy, yeah. they don't have the same attitude, they don't understand the way we operate, and they don't have the same philosophy on, on customer service, understanding the customer, how to promote products. Basically, yeah, we're a customer-driven organisation. Our buyers mm-hmm. all start off working in the stores. We don't want people that come from outside the industry. We want people that have been in our stores and that know what it's like to actually face a customer and know what it's like to receive an order and have to unpack three pallets of goods, what they need to do to be able to make the store tick. Customers changed much in the last 20 years, Jack? Oh, I think that the average age has got a little bit older as we've got older, but our customer base is anyone that, that can breathe and can walk and talk. We serve everyone. I mean, we, we have we have cosmetics for the young uh, teenagers, we have patient aids for people that um, wheelchairs and things for for the elderly. We serve everybody. I mean, we don't discriminate age wise, and we focus on providing them the best possible products at the best price. I mean, I'll give you an example: in vitamins, the mm-hmm. total vitamin market in Australia is worth about one point six billion dollars. Yep, that's one point six million dollars annual sales of vitamins. That's across pharmacy supermarkets and specialist health food stores. Yes. We, Chemist Warehouse, sell $1 billion of that $1.6 billion worth of vitamins. Right. Then if you look at what the American market's worth, the American market's worth $9 billion. Yep. So on a pro-rata wow. basis, we yeah. outsell America about two and a half to one. And there's a very good reason for that. The reason is because we have a far better product. We have a product that's far better from a quality point of view, all Australian vitamins have to be TGA approved, mm. which means that you can't make any claims that you can't substantiate from a scientific and a clinical point of view. So every one of the vitamins that we sell has got clinical backing, so they work. And because we have such great advertising, such great promotional activity, people buy more vitamins, which makes for a healthier community and it makes for healthier vitamin companies as well. The fate of the pharmacists are in the press of late. How do you see it playing out, Jack? Well, I think the government misunderstood the ramifications of what they want to do. Look, I I understand, and look, we're supportive. We're supportive of of providing a lower price product, a better value for the consumer. We're very supportive of that. But at the same token, if you cut the margin of dispensing by half, then you're going to find that everybody's going to suffer. The average pharmacy is going to lose about $170,000 per year gross margin. Now, that represents probably most of their net profit in the store. Yeah, right. We've worked out that we're going to be probably probably losing a, bit, a little bit less than that because our pricing is discounted anyway. Yep. But it will have a big impact on pharmacy and the ability of pharmacists to be able to provide the services for free that they do and the hours are open. And I think the health department, in their wisdom, having um, gone off half-cocked, I think, are, are looking at bringing some of the profitability back. I mean, they said they're going to provide other services that we can do. But the problem with that is that we 
we lose the income from dispensing and we have to spend the time and effort to do the extra services to get the extra money that they're proposing that we have. It's just not economical. It just doesn't make sense. And, you know, we strongly support the fact that the dispensing fee for 60 tablets should be double what it is for 30 tablets. And what's your thoughts also on retail at the moment in terms of regards to inflation? Well, the retailers I'm speaking to, Jack, they're all getting hit and there's a lot of restructuring already going on, as you probably know. There is. And look, and we're not immune to that. We have a moratorium on price increases, so we've kept prices down for a lot longer than our competitors. That's resulted in us being substantially cheaper than our competitors for a longer period of time. Mm. And the fact is that we're obviously better value. As a result of that, I think that we're getting more market share because people are saying, if I'm going to... We're gonna, if we're going to spend money, I'd rather spend less money at Chemist Warehouse than I would mm. at uh, one of the other pharmacies. So we are getting more market share as a result of that. Look, we're doing our very best to uh, you know, trim our margins and to reduce our expenses so that we can keep the prices as low as possible, and we are. I estimate that we save the consumer about a billion dollars a year because we have an $8 billion turnover. So at 25%, it would be close to $2 billion. Mm-hmm. But let's just let's just be conservative and say one billion. So I think that we would conservatively save the consumer one billion dollars a year. What I'm trying to struggle with, I can't understand what's happening. You got the state and federal governments spending like billion at the moment, leaving the Reserve Bank with one choice, which is to pull that lever and raise interest rates. As a result of that, inflation and pain all around for everyone. I know, I know. And to be honest, the fact is that because of our position. We're feeling less of the pain because I think people are coming to us and leaving our competitors more than coming yeah. to us. So, uh, and we'll do everything possible to ease the pain. What can I say? I can say you're in the box seat in some regards, couldn't you? Yes, well, we are. But um, I think it's unfortunate. Yeah, you know, I feel sorry for a lot of our customers and we try to help them as much as possible. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Jack Yance. On our next episode, I sit down with Paul Scurra, Managing Director and CEO of Pacific National. You have to be real about where you are and just get the facts on the table. So there's a habit of telling management and board what they want to hear without disclosing the real problem. So honesty, frankness, and owning up to where you are is very important. Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now back to the show. So where are you from, Jack, originally? Where'd you grow up? Well, I was born in Russia. My parents were Polish. And uh, they saw the Germans coming. So my mother and father weren't married. My father said to my mother, who was his girlfriend, the Germans are coming. Let's go to Russia to escape the Germans. So they did. And my father and mother eloped, I guess, to Russia. They got married there. My father was conscripted in the Russian army and he was wounded during the war. I was born in 1946, just after the war. Mm-hmm. And we ended up at a um, Paris refugee camp. We found a distant relative in Australia who sponsored us to come out and we came out, all three of us, with just the clothes on our backs and without a cent in our pockets and very little English. And my father was a furrier, made fur coats. He got oh, a yeah. job making fur coats. And my mother was a dressmaker and she uh, they worked 24-7. And not only did they work at day job, but they also worked night jobs, all to educate the family. And for me, I guess you ask, you know, what drives me? I guess the fact is that, as Holocaust survivors, my parents sort of say there's only two things in life, education and hard work. And uh, I guess that's been ingrained in my psyche. Right. Okay. So you got the education and you studied pretty hard, it sounds like? Yeah. Well, I mean, I always wanted to be a doctor, to be honest. I didn't want to do pharmacy. 
So what happened? Well, because my parents never gave me anything because my parents said, you can have anything for education, but no frivolous stuff. I, I never went to a restaurant until I was about 13 years old. Uh, my parents would never go to a restaurant, never go to a theatre, um, and they never gave me any money. So I worked every school holidays. I got into medicine and uh, I got into medicine with, I went to uni, uni high mm-hmm. and I got into medicine and uh, I thought, do I want to do another seven-year study before I earn a cent? And I said, no, no. So I said, oh, let's do pharmacy. So I just had an epitome and I thought, that was probably the best thing I did because I don't know how I would be as a doctor and certainly uh, we, I wouldn't have the business that I've got. Maybe I would, I don't know, as a doctor, but um, it certainly changed my life. Okay, so you study pharmacy. And then I, I thought when I grew up as a young kid, the local pharmacist was going to do pretty well in life, were they not? Don't get me wrong. Pharmacists do okay. I mean, you know, like they have a reasonably good, they have a good life, lifestyle, but it's a lot of hard work and uh, the 60-day the sixty day expensing is going to have uh, an effect on that. Okay, so where I'm coming from, okay, you said you've, you've studied, you passed, and then you opened up your own pharmacy. Did you open up with your brother? Yeah, I went into partnership with my brother. I, I qualified in 1966. Yes. Then I did some relieving. I did some managing of pharmacies. I had a friend of mine that, that decided to do chiropractic studies and he owned a pharmacy and he wanted someone to run the pharmacy while he was doing chiropractic studies full time. So I ran the pharmacy. I effectively leased the pharmacy. I, I bought the stock, ran the pharmacy. And then when he finished his studies, I sold him the stock back. And so I ran the pharmacy and owned it for about two and a half years. But then my brother qualified as a pharmacist and we bought our first pharmacy in 1972. Yes. And then the pharmacist across the railway line died and we bought his store too. So we had two stores. And that's when I started looking for something entrepreneurial and we started importing sunglasses. And then it, it morphed from there, became suntan lotion, fragrances and cosmetics. Yeah, so Dalton, let's, let's just start on that. So you've gone from you sitting there wearing your white coat in those days, you're coming out engaging with the customers. When did the penny drop? There's an opportunity here to do something special. Because I've read all about you standing on the sunglasses, doing all the tests, the greatest salesman in the world doing that. I thought that was fantastic. But what made you go that next step? Because you didn't need to, obviously. Well, look, I don't know. I guess I had uh, entrepreneurial um, blood in me. I, I don't know. We sold a lot of sunglasses. And I said, look, you know, let's see whether we can import the sunglasses and sell them in our own stores. So yep. that's, that's where I originally started. We went to the Taiwanese consulate, which was um, Taiwan was the country that manufactured most sunglasses. We looked through the phone books of sunglass manufacturers, went back to the pharmacy with two fingers, typed a letter, <laughs> dear sir, you've been... Recommended by the Taiwanese consulate was kind of kind of right. We had the largest sunglass <laughs> importer in Australia. Now that wasn't a lie. That which the timing difference. We soon, became, <laughs> we soon became the largest sunglass importer in Australia, uh, and we got samples. And you know, I looked at it and I said, "Well, these are so there's such much, so much value here in sunglasses that I decided to sell to other pharmacies." I so I was going to contact other pharmacies, write them a letter saying, "Dear dear fellow pharmacist." Don't buy sunglasses for the multinationals. Buy them from me, bigger margin, and looking after a fellow pharmacist. My sister, who was a teacher, decided she wanted to uh, do something entrepreneurial. So she joined us and she went round door to door to pharmacy to pharmacy and said, my brother is importing these sunglasses. They're only $4.50 a pair and you can sell them for $20. It just took off from there. And then in France, in 1979 at a trade show in France, Evelyn, my wife, saw back of a stand, a pair of sunglasses that had a, a feather hanging off of them. 
And uh, she said, what's that? And the guy says, well, you know, this is a new product we just designed, invented. It's a very lightweight frame. It's made out of a product called Cryolon, and it's unbreakable, and uh, we don't know what to do with it. So I, I took a sample back to Australia, went to a spasm advertising agency, and I walked in there and I threw the glasses on the wall and stood on them. And I said, look, I haven't got any money to advertise these, but these are the best thing I've ever seen. I want to do this on a contra basis. So Unbelievable. So they, they said, yeah, look, we'll do that. And so they, they called it the specs and they developed the TV campaign and the point of sale. And the rest is history. It just took off like a rocket. They had one of the best commercials I've ever seen, produced that, and we paid them $2.50 a pair for every pair we sold. And they did well, we did well, and it was the beginning of, um, of our growth in, in that distribution business. And then I said, look, you know, we're, we're not just in the sunglass business, we're in the distribution business. What else can we do? So we decided to do suntan lotion. So we called it Latan, started selling that before we had the first bottle produced. Selling orders ahead already, were you? Yeah, well, that's right. They loved us because the Specs was such a hot product for them. It was selling for $25, more expensive than everything else. And they were making a good margin on it. That when we said, look, we've got a suntan lotion, the pharmacist said, oh, no problem. Didn't even want to see it. Just give me give me six dozen. When the suntan lotion people went around to sell the suntan lotions, which they did in uh, in November, they said, well, well sorry, we've we already bought them. We bought them from a sunglass company three months ago. All right. The power of marketing then. What would you learn? That's a hell of a deal that you pulled off. But that's the power of engagement, isn't it? I think in marketing, I think it's important that you um, understand the customer. In anything, you don't want to get into a fair fight. When we started selling sunglasses into pharmacy, Mm -hmm. we need a distribution because if you have two stands of sunglasses, it's having the product in the store, which is important. To get it into the store is important. So we're able to do that by appealing to them on a personal basis. You're buying from a fellow colleague, and that worked well. With the suntan lotion, it was the, the unique advertisement that we had. Uh, with the fragrances, which is Australis, we, we bought Australis from a Fijian Indian family called Motorbuy, and they had the product produced in France. We said, look, if we're going to try and compete with the French on their uh, fragrances, we'll never compete because they spend – $100,000 on the packaging alone, and they spend yeah. blah, blah, blah. We'll never be able to compete, so we've got to be completely different. So instead of trying to make it with gold and tinfoil and embossed, we went to Ken Doan, and we said to Ken, look, Ken, we want to develop a fragrance brand called Australis, and uh, he designed the packaging for us, and it was just incredible because it was different. And we went into we went to Maya with a sample, and they just loved it. It was completely different. If you're going to try and compete with, if we try to compete with, with all the French brands with a similar thing, but with a twist on what they did, we'd never succeed. So we just went completely different. So Australis was completely different, and it appealed to the to the market. We created what would be called the lifestyle fragrance market. Forget about trying to think about Leah Jets and, and Paris. Think of meat pies and uh, and running through the surf, which is what the commercial showed. When you're making these decisions, pretty big calls, surely you're getting plenty of advice out there saying, mate, you've got no hope. You're up against it. It's all been done. The market's saturated. How do you go through that sort of process to make, to make the call? Well, an entrepreneur doesn't really – I mean, what we did was everything was done with the measured exposure 
So we always had a fallback position. I mean, when we did the fragrances, if the worst came to the worst, we would have a few years supply. We'd have to sell in our own stores. Well, the same with the sunglasses. We didn't do like what Woolworths did and open up 42 master stores without testing one at all. They built 42 stores at a cost of about a billion dollars and then realised after they did it that, that what they thought was a unique position was not at all what the consumer wanted. They didn't test it. They didn't ask anyone. And they used Lowe's, who are pretty big in America. But you know what they did? Lowe's, Lowe's which is a hardware chain, yep. like Bunnings over there, yep. they said the further north you go, the colder it gets. So they had snow shovels in Queensland. True story. And they also had gun safes. You know what a gun safe is? Yeah, 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 yeah. They had gun safes in all the stores. I know that for a fact because we end up, taking over the uh, the properties uh, through the group, and uh, it was a good buy. What's the art of retail then? Customer. You've got to understand the customer. Like, you know, there's no point trying to tell a customer what you want. Like, but I, I, say, I say to my buyers, if my buyer says to me, I like this, I say, if you say that again, I'm going to fire you. <laughs> I don't want you to buy what you like. I want you to buy what the customer likes. Yeah. Right? And you've got to think what the customer wants because I know for sure if, if I bought everything I liked, we wouldn't sell any. Yeah, but does the customer know what they like until they see it, Jack? You're right. I mean, but you can experiment. You know, you show, like, you've got a pretty good feeling. I mean, if you know that our buyers talk to customers, they serve the customers in the store. They talk to them. You know, I don't believe in market research where you have a focus group. I believe in Oh, you speaking. don't? No, I don't believe in focus groups. I think that focus groups can be manipulated and end up with any result you want. Okay. I mean, the advertising agency that we had at one stage said, we've got to do focus groups. We had Lespex, and Lespex was the number one selling brand in Australia. We had a focus group, and it was controlled by a very um, wealthy, well-to-do person that travelled overseas and bought all, all her sunglasses overseas, and everyone was influenced to that, and the feedback was just terrible and was just wrong. I'd rather speak to someone, ask the question, and you get a good gut feel for it if you're out there and you watch people, people's reactions to products, etc. You're right. I mean, if someone said to me 40 years ago, would you like a computer? <laughs> I'd say, what's a computer? They, well, yeah, just tell me, do you want a computer, yes or no? I'd say, no. You don't know what you want until you have it. So th- there's an art of being able to understand what people want and the trends yeah the other thing's really important i think in retail and important in business is that creative people make some very 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 good decisions very come up with some great creative ideas but they also come up with some shockers absolute shockers and it's being able to differentiate the, between the good ones and the bad ones without offending the creative person but i can guarantee you that out of 10 suggestions, there'll be hopefully six good ones and be four bad ones. And you, they're going to try and talk you into the four bad ones, and you've got to be able to identify it and quickly shut it down without offending. You've also got to fund this, don't you? So how does the entrepreneur go ahead and fund it, building this business we have got cash flow issues left, right, centre, when you're bringing in stock? When we're in the distribution business, funding it was really difficult. Because we had to buy the product, we had to create it, we had to manufacture it, stock it, sell it, and then sit on the debt until the customer paid you. The cash flow was terrible. 
before we sold the Australis Corporation on the specs Latan, we had no cash. We had no cash. We had a huge bank debt. And Jeez. I say to the accountant, I say, how are we going? He says, great, you're making a lot of money. And I say, where's the money? And they, he showed me the uh, list of debtors and the stock inventory list. He said, that's all the money. And I said, but I can't spend that. And then I've got the bank loans as well. And he said, yeah, well, the bigger you get, the more, you know, less money you have. But in retail, it's different. In retail, the money comes in every day when you sell something. Uh, it's either a credit card, which you get paid the next day, or cash, yeah. or so much cash, or the government pays every 14 days. So it's a different thing. So, you know, funding pharmacies isn't that difficult. If you've got a formula that works and you can create a profit from day one. I mean, our stores opened up pretty well at a profit from day one because because we've created such a strong branding and a strong vehicle that um, people anticipate them opening up and they just go there. Why did you sell your first business then, Jack? Well, for a number of reasons. Firstly, as I said, we had the biggest bank loan that I'd ever seen. I couldn't count the number of zeros that I'd signed for, number one. Number two, the French decided they're going to do some nuclear testing in the Pacific. And so there was a big anti-French movement mm. to uh, ban anything French. Now, we weren't necessarily French, but we were like perceived as being French, La Specs, Latin. I was worried that um, in the event that the French decide to pick on poor old La Specs and Latin, mm-hmm. that my business would be down the tubes. So... Mm. And besides, Graham Smorgan made me an offer I couldn't refuse. I guess that's another reason. Okay. And it was the best and worst thing that I did. The best thing that I did because it, it gave me financial stability, not a lot mm-hmm. of money, but gave us financial stability, got rid of all the debt. And the worst thing I did because I loved that business, I really loved it, and uh, my kids and my wife, I don't know if they've actually forgiven me for selling that great business. What did you love so much about it? Oh, it was the fact that you could create – um, product. We had a new fragrance every year. You chose the sunglasses and you have got a big kick out of seeing people walking down the street with them. When I went to the beach and I saw so many bottles of tan, it gave me a big, <laughs> a big buzz. It was the success measures like that gave me a bigger buzz than everything else, seeing people use the product. And uh, I, mean, I get a big buzz and people come to me and say, Jack, you're a bastard. What do you mean? I went into your store and I spent $100. And I said, that's fantastic. <laughs> What was the catalyst then for Chemist Warehouse? I guess we looked at it and we said we've got, we've got 50 stores. Yeah. I saw the big blockbusters, the big Bunnings were, were getting big, and I saw all the big drug chains in America, how they dominated the scene, and I thought, look, yep. we've got 50 stores. If we open up one Chemist Warehouse and it bombs, well, we'll just have to take a bat and ball and change it back to a normal my Chemist store. I must tell you, it's not like it worked immediately. I mean, we had to work really hard to tweak the range, uh, get more rebates from suppliers, start getting some advertising funds in. It was a lot of hard work, but we always had a fallback position. We always had a plan B. Plan A was let's cut the price of everything and see if we can give the consumer great value and see how that goes, see what size pharmacy we can have. And plan B was, well, if at the end of the day we don't make money, well, we'll just convert it to a biochemist and just scale everything down. When did you get out of bed and say, hey, we're onto something, this is working? What was the uh, the key sign? Um, 
you know what? There's never one specific time that, you know, it's just gradual. And then when we started getting successful, we didn't say, let's crack the champagne and celebrate. We said, well, let's do our second or third and fourth store. And then when they were successful, so let's let's do it. We opened our 500 store a few months ago. That was probably one mm. of the few times we've actually had a ribbon cutting ceremony and we actually did something that sort of celebrate a bit of a milestone. So are you a natural retailer? Do you surround yourself by people to educate you? You've got mentors or do you just pack your bags and go to the States, UK on a regular basis and just watch? How do you learn all this? Well, I don't know. My parents had a milk bar. Ultimately, they bought a milk bar. I mean, I don't know if that's, that's a good retail experience. Um, it's instinctive, I think. You know, you either understand business or you don't. You know, I can help solve a business problem. I think I can see what will work and what won't work. I might not be right, but at least I'll give it a try. I didn't know what an entrepreneur was until I sold Australis, did an MBA, and le- and did an entrepreneurial course in America. And then I right. said, you know what, that's what I am. I'm an entrepreneur. I hadn't ever identified myself in that particular way. As an entrepreneur, you're growing fast, you're making decisions, you're taking, obviously, calculated risks. What type of people do you surround yourself with, Jack? I think you've got to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you, which isn't hard. And you've got to listen to them. I mean, and then you also got to guide them. I mean, as I said, smart people come up with some very good decisions and some very bad decisions, creative people. So it's a matter of being able to have them see your vision, your direction, etc. I mean, we've got 20,000 staff. We've got about 700 in head office. We've got managers of each of the departments. We've got our own advertising agency, by the way. Yeah. Uh, we've had so much experience with advertising. I mean, advertising agencies usually want to win awards. For them, that's that's success. I don't care about awards. I want to win customers and sell product. Our advertising is unashamedly designed to maximise retail. And so we do a lot of things in-house. We've got our, in, our own in-house advertising agents. As I said, we've got our own in-house building company that uh, we build the shops. Yeah, right. We build the fiction fittings and we actually – Sometimes we actually have to build build a shop. We'll actually build a store from scratch. We've got our own in-house creative people, our graphic artists. So everything, we do as much as we can in-house. And the actual shop itself, the actual land that it's on, who owns that? That's subject to certain laws. How does that play out? We rent most of our pharmacies. If we can, we'll buy the store uh, because we believe that uh, we'd rather own the property than pay someone rent because we're going to add value to that particular location. We've got a store in Chadston. We don't own Chadston. We pay a lot of money to the Chadston Shopping Centre for that. You're listening to the No Limitations podcast, brought to you by Blenheim Partners. Blenheim Partners is an international board and executive search firm working with chairs, directors, CEOs, and senior executives on their most critical people choices. For more information, visit BlenheimPartners.com. So the, the actual leadership, where decisions are made, Jack, how does it all come together and work? Mario Barocchi is our CEO. He runs the business. I'm the chairman, and I'm not really involved in the, in the day-to-day operations. My brother is more involved in the property. My nephew is the commercial manager, and we've got um, a number of uh, heads of IT. We've got a CFO that came from Computer Share. We've got very high-profile and very skilled people that run all the different departments and keep the thing running. We've got our own warehouses. We've got about 70,000 square metres at Summerton uh, in Melbourne. We've got probably a bigger shed than Sigma and API and, and Symbian. We distribute for ourselves and then we have 
Uh, and now Sigma won the contract uh, for next year to distribute all the products to our stores nationally. So what's the type of thinking that is undertaking before you go into new markets, Jack? So you've had to, obviously, you've, you've done your, your tests around China and you've got some ambitions there. And as you say earlier, we're starting- you new markets overseas. Yeah, like you said, you conquered your backyard here in Australia. Well, don't worry, it's still got more, more to play, but this is brand new turf and it's also a different style of customer as well, is it not? Well, we've been invited by the Israeli government to go to Israel because uh, the price in Israel of health and beauty products is at least two to three times the price of what it is in Australia. And yeah, we're right. going to break those barriers down. We're going to be so we, I've been working with the Israeli government. I spoke to Knesset, and we've got a partner there, and we're working towards changing the legislation about imports, etc., to be able to get rid of the monopolies that exist. We're looking at um, other countries as well. You know, as I said, we didn't go to Ireland to go to Ireland. We're looking to go to the UK. So that's our next big opportunity, and also Europe. We're looking to go to Italy. Mm-hmm and other European markets. And we're getting a lot of experience. We're, we're learning a lot about um, the market. We're currently looking at Dubai. Dubai would be our entry yeah, into right. the Middle East. Middle East. Yeah, yeah. Right. and Dubai is a great market because importing products there is pretty easy. And mm-hmm. the market there is very expensive because it can be. If you go to Dubai, anything there is about two to three times the price what it is in Australia. So... We've been working with the with Austrade and with uh, a lot of local, a lot of suppliers to go into Dubai. In fact, we've just got someone over there right now looking at the Dubai market, and hopefully, we'll open within the next twelve months. America is obviously uh, the biggest market in the world, yep. but it's also the most difficult because you know it is so competitive there. In order to be able to get any traction, you're going to need to open you know hundred stores, and that's going to be. One, expensive. Two, beyond our bandwidth in people because, you know, as I said, we need to make sure that the people that run the stores are people that understand our business and we can only clone people so much. You know, they get a bit thin after a while. And it's one big sort of global sourcing focus as well, is it? We do global sourcing. We export from Australia to Ireland and to New Zealand. and We source locally. New Zealand would be about 70% local and 30% from Australia. And mm-hmm. Ireland would be probably about 10% from Australia and 90% from Ireland. Where do you see in 10, 15 years, Jack, physical versus online sales? Well, we're the biggest online uh, pharmacy in Australia. We went from about $200 million a year to about $600 million a year during COVID. But yeah. online business isn't as profitable as people say it is because, firstly, it's much more labour-intensive. Secondly, there's freight involved and mostly we pay the freight, although now we're charging for freight for everything. And we had a bit of a hit when we did that. But I think people realise that we, you know, our prices are so cheap, they can't really expect to get our prices and freight free as well. And we continue to grow the online business. Online business, although it's not profitable, we'd rather have it than someone else. Okay. So when you did your, your MBA course and you realised you're an entrepreneur, what do you think are the, the key skills that an entrepreneur requires to succeed? Well, for an entrepreneur to succeed, you have to figure out what your strategic advantage is. If two people think of exactly the same thing, and one of them, I'll give you an example. I mean, people come to me and say, Jack, I've got this great idea. And let's say the idea is that automatic dog poo picker-upper, okay? <laughs> that, sounds like, that sounds like a great idea, and I'm sure that there's a big market for it. But let's forget about that. 
the guy over there that I'm, I point to someone else, so that guy over there, he also thought of the same thing. Yep. What have you got that gives you a strategic advantage over him? And don't tell me money or hard work because that isn't going to cut it. If your father-in-law is the president of the uh, veterinary association, if you have 2,000 veterinary stores that you can you know, tap into or you've got a distribution network that you can work with, then you've got a strategic advantage. If you don't, then don't do it because it's hard work when you don't have a strategic advantage. You've got a strategic advantage in something. Think of what you've got strategic advantage in and then use that. Yeah, but did you have a strategic advantage from day one? You're going back all those years. You had a couple of pharmacies. You had some brilliant ideas, then you flipped that into distribution. It's true. The strategic advantage I had was that there was 100 sunglass importers trying to sell to pharmacy, but I cut through because I said, I'm a fellow pharmacist, buy from me. So they bought from me rather than from anyone else. We had the strategic advantage with Australis because we had a, a lifestyle fragrance that was different than the pretentious fragrances that, that, that other people were selling and it created a, a new market. We had a strategic advantage with the specs where we had an unbreakable product that we could promote and advertise that was quite unique to anything else. We had a strategic advantage when we started Chemist Warehouse because we were able to take a hit on margin while we built up the brand or the model to the point where it it started to become profitable. You're considering opening in the UK. You're already tested with Ireland. You're talking about Dubai. How hard is it to do business in Australia compared to the opportunities presented by those other governments? I think there's great opportunities in Australia. All you've got to do is you've just got to be um, work hard and uh, work to your strategic advantages. Look, I think that uh, I love entrepreneurship and I love entrepreneurs. I won the Australian Entrepreneur of the Year Award, uh, Ernst & Young, and I promote and strongly support entrepreneurship. People come to me with ideas. I will talk to them about how they can take advantage of it with their strategic advantages. I think there's great opportunities in Australia. But Australia is different than America. You can be very big in America and only be in a small part of it. You know, in the sunglass business, I knew a lot of people in the sunglass business in America that were only strong in in Miami. You couldn't do that in Australia. You've got to be Australia-wide. If you want to be successful in Australia, you've got to be all over the country because the country is too small to be in only one state or one area. Okay. So you found a lead and you are not listed. Does that give you an advantage? Being non-listed? Um, yeah. Well, I think it does. You can make decisions without having to tell the world about your decisions. And you don't have to spend your day talking to shareholders and, and keep them informed on what you're doing. And you speak to someone and you're going to do a strategic alliance with someone. You don't have to tell the world about it. But there again, on the other hand, being listed has also got advantages in that, that it gives you access to capital markets. It gives you liquidity. It gives you real value for your shares. At the moment, we've got a uh, unlisted private company, uh, public company, sorry, uh, with about 220 shareholders at uh, the franchisors. They're all our partners. And it's really hard to work out what the value is of the company. So what are you going to do, Jack? You ultimately are going to list the business when the time is right? One of the options. We're not in a hurry because we're not taking money off the table. We, we reinvest everything in the expansion. I mean, we invested in New Zealand. We invested in Ireland. We're going to invest in Israel probably, in Italy, in Dubai. Uh, so we take off the table 
as little as we need to be able to to live and to um, manage the business, and we reinvest everything else. So capital comes in handy. Yeah, well, it's we're heavily invested in our own business. So you know, if um, and we and we believe in it, and we and we believe that the, the growth potential is there. I honestly believe that uh, that we could dominate most international countries. The thing about it is, we know how to do the chemist warehouse model. People have copied us and haven't yep. done it the same way or done it as well. You have to have 20, 23 years' experience to be able to uh, come up with what we do. Uh, we've got a big machine behind everything we do that gives us the strategic advantage over our competitors. I mean, if somebody has got a store that's doing $2 million and we open next to them, we'll open at $10 million or $12 million, and if they try to match mm. us, they'll go broke. So what they typically will do is they will increase the services they provide and and over service the customer and provide you know and make money out of all the other things vaccines etc which we do anyway but this is the way that they increase their profitability. Hey, what's the uh, the worst piece of advice you've received as an entrepreneur? The worst piece of advice? <laughs> so I'm sure you must receive plenty. Look, you know, people say to me, "Tell me about the things that went wrong." And I can't, uh, you know, I can't remember the things went wrong. I think I just tend to forget about them. The best piece of advice that I can give to someone is make sure that people who work for you make a mistake. And so if they don't make a mistake, then they're not really trying hard enough. But don't let them make the same mistake twice. I uh, I can't tell you a bad piece of advice. Uh, I think we feel I filter them pretty well. I think I have a a knack of being able to tell the difference between bullshit and truth. Mm-hmm. I have a very low level of tolerance of bullshit, and so I don't really listen to a lot of the bad advice. So when you're taking on big ventures like you guys are, as you're talking about, how does the think tank work between yourself, Sam, and, and Mario? You know, you see you hear of other organisations who set about, created their own labs and testing labs or, you know, new technology ideas. How do you guys operate? Because you move with speed. It's velocity which is fascinating. We make most decisions when we pass each other on the way to the toilet. Uh, <laughs> we understand each other pretty well. We think alike. I mean, there's not a thing in pharmacy that I haven't personally done or that Mario hasn't done or Sam hasn't done. I mean, you know, you, know, I, you can't teach someone, you can't manage someone if you haven't done what, what you want them to do. And so we understand each other pretty well and we make decisions we never vote on anything. We usually agree and unanimously agree on something. So there's something to be said for uh, tenure then, as opposed to chief execs walking out after every three to five years. How long have you been running the show for? You? How long have you three been a triumphant? Well, twenty I start, plus years. I started the business in 1972 with Sam. So what's that? Fifty-one years. So there's got to be something said for that, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean we've had employees that have been with us for thirty years, for thirty-five years. There's two different philosophies on buyers. One is that you change them regularly because otherwise they get too close to the supplier and they can be bribed and influenced unduly. And the other strategy is that you keep the buyer the same because that way they, they retain the knowledge and they become more expert at the area and they can do a, make better decisions. We go for the second because we think we can't trust the supplier by switching them around. You know, it's sort of like employer thief but don't let them inside the house. If you, if you really believe that your buyer is going to be on the take, you've got the wrong person there. Jack, can you sort of talk to the audience a little bit about, because a lot of entrepreneurs will be listening to this, an organisation obviously seeking growth. How do you create that dynamism, innovation, but also that DNA, that culture 
that you're talking about. If I walk into one of your stores or if I walk into your HQ, what am I going to feel? You'll see people running around all very excited and enthusiastic. You'll find uh, a big positive buzz. You'll find people that, that have authority to make decisions and therefore are um, excited about working in the business. You'll see people staying back late at night. You'll see them coming in early. And you'll see people with a smile on their face. There's a lot of joking going on, but it's a serious business. Where's productivity at for you guys? Um, One of the challenges over COVID and people coming back to work? No, no, no. Everyone's pretty well back at work. First of all, everyone, all the store people have to be back at work. I mean, you can't remotely operate a retail operation from home. Um, And I believe that working together and just listening to someone else's telephone conversation is going to give you an idea of something that you can do. It's really important that we work as a team, that we get ideas off each other, that we leverage off each other's um, skills and, you know, and just learn from listening to other people talking, listening to what they do. So how do you stay in touch with the customers, Jack? Is that by the analytics or are you out there out in the cold face? I try to be in the stores as much as possible and try to – well, I also spend a lot of time in, in stores overseas because that's where I see a lot of future trends and look at what's happening over there. I probably spend more time in stores overseas than I do in Australia. It's amazing what you can learn. You learn not just from pharmacies, you learn from every retail operation that you go into. And not just retail, but any business has got something that you can learn from. So what are you learning from your travels to the US of late and the UK? That the US market obviously screwed, that the US pharmacy market's terrible and that the front of shop there is dead and that needs chemist warehouse to get in there. But I need to work out how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time. So the US market uh, the average pharmacy in the U.S. is on about 2,000 square metres, 20,000 square feet. It was built in the 1970s, 1980s when the front of shop business was very strong. Now what's yep. happened is that they're focusing on prescription business and have given up the front of shop. And we're looking forward to going there and to reviving the market and uh, showing them how it can be done. All right. What about uh, UK? we got uh, domination of boots. Last time I was over there, I met one of the senior people from Boots, and he said, go and have a look at the Kensington store, Kensington Street store. I look at it, and the ground floor looked like a Sephora. There was not one health product on the ground floor. It was all perfumes and and cosmetics, which is good. But I think we're at health and beauty. So we sell health. We sell vitamins. We sell first aid. We sell medicines. And we sell beauty. I think Boots have gone in the wrong direction, and uh, I think that when we get to the UK which hopefully won't be, won't be too far away, will certainly give them a bit of a challenge. Can you give us a bit of a rundown of your synopsis of what you're seeing out there in the world, Jack? How are the economies of the US, UK, Europe? The US is still bubbling ahead, even though they've got high inflation and high unemployment in, in areas. It's an amazing market. It doesn't matter what happens. It's still resilient. I think retail's still powering along. The UK is suffering a lot. I don't think that they're growing as fast or growing at all. New Zealand's our best market because because the competition is so expensive that our discounts are so much greater than what percentage-wise than they are in Australia. Uh, China's going to take a long time to recover, and I think don't uh, ignore the fact that COVID's had a big impact on China. But I've been travelling a fair bit, and you go to Rome, you go in the streets in Rome, there's millions of people everywhere. It's it's like it's like everyone's back in the streets. It's just amazing. And hotel prices are just through the roof. You think we're playing it smart now with our relationships with China? 
I don't know. I really can't read them. There are issues with China, obviously. I mean, the fact that they want to dominate the Pacific and make uh, deals with all of the, our neighbours uh, is, is quite frightening. Um, but by the same token, we should have a better mutual relationship with them. They buy a lot of product from us and we buy a lot of product from them. We shouldn't be trying to hit each other over the head with a mallet, which is what China's doing and what I guess we're sort of retaliating. Jack, what's leadership to you? Ultimately, you've grown this business. How do you see leadership and how do you lead? Well, I don't really lead the operational team. I lead the management team and I guess uh, no one has a job description. Everyone does whatever's necessary. And if something happens and someone needs it, we just find out who the best person is to do it. Leadership. I think that by example, I mean, people see the way that we operate, the way that Mario is a CEO up until recently, he'd go to store openings and he'd cut cartons and put them out in the front. Now, I said to Mario, that's a waste of your time, but it wasn't really. It shows by leadership, by the fact that he doesn't believe that rolling up your sleeve is um, beyond him. Yeah. You know, like nothing beyond me to do something. I don't have a PA. I do everything myself. And uh, I think everyone's got to chip in and do whatever's necessary. There's no set rules. You know, and you set the, uh, the company vision and the direction. How far ahead do you guys look? 24 hours. <laughs> I know you check the numbers every 24 hours, that's for sure, if that. Well, How far I ahead mean, do you do I it? Mean, we, I mean, <laughs> when I did the MBA, you know, I spent a lot of time doing business plans, but we don't yeah. have a business plan. Our business plan is do the best you can. We have a general business plan in our heads, and it changes all the time. If you put something down in writing and you go down that direction without being able to switch and pivot when necessary, that's when you have a problem. If you become too fixed on a particular outcome and it doesn't work out, you're just going to continue to throw more money after bad and you're not going to accept the fact that it's not working. If we make a decision that doesn't work, let's change it. Let's pivot. So for entrepreneurs like you, you're so close and engaged in the business, out of interest, Jack, where do you take the time to think? Is it on the airplane flying to the US? Like where do you sit back and go, right, that's a that's a great idea. Well, why haven't we thought about that? I'm going to bounce it around. Mario, when I get back, or Sam, like, where does all that come, happen? Two in the morning when I What's wake it? up, people say to me, what keeps you awake at night? And I say, insomnia. <laughs> I don't sleep. But is that where the ideas come flying? Is that oh, you, know, like I get, you know, I get, but then I've got to write it down because by the time in the morning, I've forgotten it. So I've got to write it down. So I usually have a big iPad next to me and I usually send myself an email with the idea. In the morning, I look at it and I say, that was stupid, but it's an idea. Uh, or it's a great idea, and then we work out how to implement it. But everything's small changes. Everything's slight improvements. That's the culture, is it? Yeah. Continuous improvement. But one of the things that came to me was when Swiss sold to – first of all, Swiss went over to America. Yeah, Swiss Vitamins went over to America, and they, yeah, yeah. they and they really didn't know the market well, and they got screwed by Walgreens, and they came back, and they were pretty well broke. We gave them a big order supported them and then they sold the business for uh, 1.7 billion Australian dollars. Yeah. They gave us a bottle of wine as a thank you for helping them with the sale. So I said, you know what? If we're going to help people to make their business bigger and stronger, we should do it on a mutual basis. So I've got a number of strategic alliances that, you know, that was the idea that the fact that that happened gave me the concept of doing strategic alliances. So now. I've got a number of strategic alliances where we 
have equity with the manufacturer, we say to the manufacturers, look, we've got a choice. We can either be a good customer. We're always good customers. We don't fight our suppliers. We believe in working with them mutually to increase the mutual business. It's not a zero-sum game. But we can also be a strategic partner. And if we're a strategic partner, any new ideas are going to come to you and we're going to work with you to grow the business mutually. And it's a different attitude working with a partner than working with a supplier. So we've got about 15 strategic suppliers that we work with. Like, for example, we work with McPherson's where they distribute some of our private label products and we add more to the, yeah. And so mutually we grow the business together. Another interesting one is Inova, where Inova was owned by two venture capital companies and we worked with them to grow the business and as a result of that, we got equity in the business and when they sold the business, we got a payout. Now, all along, we benefited from the products that we developed with them and they benefited from the fact that we were able to grow their business to the point where they were able to sell it at about two and a half times the price that they paid for it and we got a payout when they sold. So it was a win-win for everybody. And we're looking at doing more of that. So you spend your time on focusing on getting the alliances and the relationships. How does that compare against spending your time against competition, Jack, in the mindset of getting the market? So when you go into, say, the UK, and you go to, you're up against again, big beast, right? Do you examine the competitors all day? Our actual activity with competition is to make sure that no one beats our prices. But we don't really worry okay. about competition because we will do our own thing and let them worry about, about what they do. I was wondering how you how you do factor that in. So you don't you don't examine the competition closely. We look at what they do, but we don't worry too much about what they do, and we're more worried about what we're going to do. Just because the competition does X doesn't mean it's good or it's going to be successful. But sometimes they'll do X, and we'll say, "Hey, we can do X plus Y, which is different, and it can be more successful than what they've done." Okay, and the alliances you you started to build—that's something you're going to build out in different parts of the world as well. We'll only do it with products that are good. We don't want to fill the store with wallpaper. So if we've got a product that's good and that's going to sell, we can make it better. We can make it greater. We can make it more effective because we've got the distribution to be able to put into our 550 plus stores and guarantee distribution, guarantee placement, guarantee that it will be successful. And as a result of that, it's a win-win if the product's good and if it sells. If the product's no good and doesn't sell, we don't want to touch it because um, even if they offered it to us for free, which we've had many times, people have said, put our milk formula on your shelves, we'll give it to you for yep. free because we want to go to China. We want the Chinese to see the product in your stores. We said, you know, frankly, we don't sell wallpaper and if we put it on the shelves and it doesn't sell, we're taking away space from something that does sell, so I'm sorry doesn't matter how attractive you make your offer to us, we're not going to put it in. But if it's good and it does sell, we'll say to them, we'll put it on our shelves and we'll go in a strategic alliance with you and we'll take equity. Uh, Jack, earlier in the conversation, I asked you about success and you said, look, it didn't take time to necessarily celebrate the wins. When is the time to celebrate the wins and crack that bottle of champagne? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I think when we've got a store in Oxford Street and a store in Fifth Avenue, New York, I think that's got to be the time they're going to crack the champagne in those two markets, which I think the two fabulous markets that we can get in there and be successful. That's got to be the feather in my cap. And Jack, if you were to look back at that young man studying pharmacy all those years ago and decided not to pursue medicine, 
at pharmacy. What advice would you give him now? I'd say don't take yourself too seriously. Enjoy what you do. Do what you enjoy. Think of things that you can do that can be creative and that create value for yourself and others. Don't forget that we've got 220 partners that we've helped make successful businesses, uh, which were created. And we've given we've given manufacturers back a lot of extra profitability through the increased sales and the consumers saving over a billion dollars a year. So pretty good feeling in what you're doing. Yeah, look, I love what I do. I wake up every morning thinking about what I can do today that's going to be more exciting than yesterday. And I usually wake up raring to go, even after four hours sleep. <laughs> On that, Jack, I really appreciate you making the time today. Thanks very much. My pleasure. You've been listening to No Limitations. 